Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus and today joining me is Marcelo Estevao. Uh, he's the Global Director of the World Bank Group's Macroeconomics Trade and Investment Global Practice known as the MTI. Um, Marcelo leads a large team of country economists, macroeconomists and you know focusing on fiscal policy, debt and macro uh, issues across the world. Um, and he's leading and overseeing the delivery of the global analytical work on macroeconomics and fiscal and debt policy and coordinating the MTI, uh, the strategic direction of the MTI and implementing it uh, for helping shape and oversee MTI's country and regional programs and for mobilizing staff to work more effectively across equitable growth finance and institutions and other global practices. Um, and the reason why we have Marcelo joining us today uh, out of his busy, taking out time out of his busy schedule joining us today is to talk about the global economic outlook and, and how that's impacting countries, developing countries, emerging markets, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and the argument today for today's episode is to look at what's going on globally and its impact on countries like Pakistan, which of course we've talked a lot about on our podcast. So Marcelo, thank you so much for taking out the time today and welcome to Pakistanomy. Thank you. Thanks so much, Usayu, for the invitation. Looking forward to the conversation. I want to begin with, you know, your perspective on the global economic outlook and, and where are things today, where are they headed in the next 12 to 18 months, fully recognizing that there are a lot of exogenous factors, the war in Ukraine, climate change, natural disasters, etc. that may upend or influence the outlook. But as we speak today, um, where are things and where do you see the global economic outlook headed? Um, the world economy is in trouble. Why is that? Um, first, because uh, let's call it core economies, just in the sense they are big economies and they affect all the economies in the world, like the US and Europe, are in a process of tightening monetary policy and financial conditions more broadly because of the inflationary shock that they suffered. Um, that inflationary shock is also affecting the whole globe. Pakistan has uh, inflationary pressure, other countries in the world as well. But uh, the reason that I want to start this conversation by, let's say, the U.S. first, is because what happens in terms of monetary fiscal policy in the U.S. affects the whole world. So the U.S. economy right now is in a situation that is uh, basically overheated. Unemployment rate is quite low for historical standards is 3.7%. Um, the economy is still, you know, chugging along healthily. Um, the Fed has raised interest rates to kind of bring economic activity a bit more to sustainable levels. And the whole discussion here in the US, I'm, I'm talking to you from my office in Washington, DC. The whole discussion is, you know, does the Fed need to bring the US economy into recession to control uh, inflation or not. So far, the Fed has raised rates quite aggressively. So policy interest rates are between 3.75 and 4% in the United States. But you see very little effect on inflation. The, the, the inflation data that we got this morning was actually on the positive side, it was not as strong as many people expected but it's still but it's still between let's say for the next months it's going to be between seven and eight percent which is high uh we see inflation of goods 
beginning to go down um, as the U.S. tighten uh, monetary policy. The sectors that tend to react the most are goods producing sectors, in particular, say the housing sector, because mortgages are very sensitive to monetary policy. They are the first sectors that tend to begin to slow down. But the service sector, this one is like a big elephant that keeps running. And so far, the increase in interest rates has just stoked the beast a little bit, but hasn't really stopped it. Uh, so we expect, uh, and the market expects, that the Fed is going to continue raising rates. If you look at the, the recent price in the market, has the US probably with rates at around 5% by the first quarter of next year. It could be more. Many markets participants are now expecting close to 6%. And that's based on, on analysis that says more needs to be done to kind of slow down a bit this economy. And in this process, the Fed may end up creating a recession, even if it's shallow. So in that, okay, now let me talk a little bit about Europe before talking about the impact on the world. Now, Europe is, is slightly different, or, or not so slightly, because the origins of inflation in Europe are still quite tightly related to the supply shock that they are facing, in particular, the energy production, uh, the energy supply uh, to Europe from Russia. Uh, as you know, the, the continent is quite dependent on Russian gas, and there is a winter coming, and depending on the severity of this winter, the situation can be quite dire in Europe in terms of uh, the price of this gas and the availability. Um, so, so there is an inflationary shock and the ECB is hiking rates, but it's not as simple as just bringing the economy back to some kind of uh, sustainable path. Actually, the European economy is not that overheated, if it is overheated at all. It's more a case of uh, this supply shock that has been pressured inflation. So there, the job of the ECB is a bit more complicated because there's, the ECB cannot do much about the supply shock. So anyway, so that's what we see in the world. But the bottom line is that, and then other central banks are also tighten. You see the Bank of Canada, Bank of Australia, New Zealand. Uh, Japan hasn't started tightening, but it's beginning to think about it because they also have, their currency is depreciating quite a bit. It's something that Japan wanted to happen. And they now have some inflation, which they have been trying to produce for a while. Uh, so they are beginning to move also to, to the direction of, of being worried about uh, uh, excessive depreciation of the yen and all that. In this situation for emerging markets like Pakistan, what's happening is that um, those the emerging markets also need to hike rates because in, in that situation where the world seems to be moving toward a, a recession, um, there's capital, capital flows in particular to the United States, also because the interest rates they're being offered for what's basically a risk-free asset are also higher. So, so countries like Pakistan need to increase interest rates, which affects economic activity. Also has to do that also for internal reasons, because of the inflationary pressures, one of the mechanisms that affect inflation in Pakistan is exactly the depreciation of the currency. So by hiking rates, the, the central bank is kind of putting a lid on how much depreciation will happen in the currency. So 
so I think the emerging uh, markets are facing a situation that they have to follow what core economies are doing, because uh, if they don't, they are going to face much dire circumstances, in particular on the inflationary side. And some of these countries are not, uh, economic activity in some of these countries are not very strong. So it may create a situation where, of a, a recession or slow growth because these countries are not coming from a position of, of strength. Now, what if, yeah, just to finalize, of course, there's a difference in the story, depending on which country you're talking about. Some countries that have better macroeconomic policies, they have been, um, actually, some have tightened interest rates way before the Fed. Say Brazil is a case in point, where they saw inflation coming first, and they are reading, the reading of the Brazilian Central Bank is that this is not going to come down soon. You need to tighten rates. So what we have now this year, Brazil is maybe one of the only countries among the emerging markets where there has been capital inflows uh, on that in the year. And actually the local currency, the real, has appreciated, not depreciated. A couple of other countries also had some appreciation of the currency, but that tends to be more for specific stories. I think the story about having done the right macro policy before uh, paid off, I think Brazil would be a case in point. So so anyway, the situation varies depending on the country's uh, intrinsic strength. Thanks for that overview. And then again, this is something that has been a conversation on, on my own podcast. And so the audience is familiar with this in terms of being prudent, proactively tightening the belts, monetary and fiscal side. Pakistan has not done enough of that. And that's a more domestic debate in terms of, you know, political instability, et cetera. But one question that I have for you, given the broader macro outlook, right, is you have countries that say are making the same argument that Europe is, it's a supply shock. We import a lot of energy or food. Raising rates doesn't really do that. The prudent economic policy is, okay, deal with your fiscal deficits because, you know, that also has an impact on your currency stability and growth overall. So you need to slow things down. To which a lot of times I hear the pushback even in Pakistan is that, well, we can't cut our fiscal deficit at a time when energy is expensive, food is expensive, because what are the poor people going to do? So how have you seen countries, not Pakistan, let's let's look outside of Pakistan, deal with this challenge where you have a really significant exogenous shock. You have capital flows going back into the United States because the reach for yield is essentially over. Um, but then they're like, hey, we need to run loose fiscal policy and, and on top of it, loose monetary policy, because if we don't, our people go hungry. How have countries navigated this, this conundrum? Yeah, I think here the, the, the answer to, to this question is being focused on how you spend your, your resources. So what I mean by that, let's actually talk about Pakistan. It's not just... Um, you know, food is expensive, energy is expensive, the people do not have as much uh, purchasing power, which is true. It's also, you had a major flood in the country, so we need to use resources to deal with this very serious natural catastrophe. The way to, to kind of close this problem, to find a solution is to use the fiscal resource you have extreme, extremely well. So the government needs to go back, look at the efficiency of government spending, cut things that are not absolutely necessary and direct transfers to the poor 
direct transfers to the regions that suffer from the flood. I know this is hard. That that is going to basically mean that basically means say no to people to groups that still have that that uh, flow of resources coming from the government and redirecting to another part of the population and in the regions. But that's what needs to be done in a in an era of tight resources. You need to be very particularly uh, careful how you spend. Uh, you should be careful all the time, but in particular in, in during those times. So that's the only way out. So for instance, uh, in many countries, and I think Pakistan is also part of that big group, you have many um, subsidies and tax transfers and and basically special regimes to support, to help particular parts of the productive sector of the population. Now it's time to review all that to basically review all that and making sure that that tax system and spending system is the most efficient. And I'm not a specialist on Pakistan accounts, but the little that I know suggests me that there's a lot to be done like that in Pakistan. And um, so I think that that would be the, and by the way, and in this process, you can increase taxation, but not on the poor, increase taxation on a base that hasn't been taxed. Let me give an example. If you compare uh, developing countries with, say, OECD countries, very often it's hard to compare. These are so different economies. But there is one aspect that is very telling. In OECD countries, there is a share of tax revenues that come from property taxes. It's quite clear. It has a role. It's not a major share, but it's definitely a share that matters. In the U.S., for instance, I pay property tax on the house that I own. In developing countries, often there's no property taxes or very little. So, and I would say in Pakistan, uh, that type of taxation is also uh, insufficient or not as well uh, enacted. So if that's the case, increasing taxes on property and on inheritance, for instance, is a very progressive way to get resources to the government and the government can use those resources to then transfer to the poor. So basically what I'm saying is, I think parts of the Pakistani economy may be even overtaxed, even though tax to GDP is quite low in Pakistan. So I'm not saying raise taxes for everybody. And also you need to be careful how you raise tax because you do not want to affect too much growth. But I'm pretty sure there are base, tax base that haven't been tapped and they could be tapped. So anyway, just to finalize, you need a program of rethinking how your fiscal sector is set up. You need to reprioritize your spending and that priority should have first, whatever your tax system is, should be even more progressive. Second, uh, transfers should be given to the real fragile people, to people that really need those transfers. And the transfer to other groups should just be cut. No, that's excellent advice. And in fact, it's something that I personally bicker a lot about myself. And you mentioned property taxes, for example. So the fun fact I have that I give to people in Pakistan and outside is that the Indian city of Pune, which is not a mega, it's a big city by but by, by, by compared to Karachi or Lahore, it's not that big, um, raises more in property taxes than the entire province of Sindh. Um, right. And so clearly, and again, property taxes by their very nature are progressive because who owns property? People with wealth. Um, and so taxing them is the right step forward. It hasn't happened in Pakistan. 
And the UN itself says that about $17.5 billion a year in Pakistan are given as subsidies, tax breaks, et cetera, to rich parts of the country, um, corporations, the military, et cetera. And again, your point on restructuring all of that, taking a holistic look at all of these things to protect the people who need the money the most, but also not overtaxing, for example, industry, which overall cumulatively pays 50% uh, in taxes because they're easy to get to. It needs to change. And it's been a consistent theme um, across governments that they fail to do that. And maybe the floods are an opportunity to, to achieve that. I want to, on that note itself, like, you know, again, like many emerging markets, Pakistan um, binged on debt, uh, dollar denominated debt when the reach for yield was going on. Now it's obviously much harder to get access to the bond market at those same rates. There's a lot of activity on discounts of the euro bond debt for Pakistan, uh, but Sri Lanka and others have faced similar issues. Um, how are countries navigating this new era from a debt financing perspective, from your point of view? Like, what are the things that you're seeing evolve, particularly for emerging markets that, frankly, for the last 15 years or so, or since the global financial crisis when rates came really low, um, have really found it very easy to tap into dollar-denominated debt? Um, the broad appreciation of the of the U.S. currency makes it much harder to have uh, uh, debt servicing dollars because um, that's basically um, it's it's um, you, you have most of your revenues in local currency. You have to tap into dollars to then pay the service of this debt. So and and again, in the premium that is put on indebtedness in dollar. Is, is higher now. So if you look at the what you call MBI spreads for key um, countries that are in trouble, like Pakistan, the situation in Pakistan is quite serious, the financial situation. Um, they are very high. So indebtedness in dollar becomes much harder. So Pakistan should be looking into concessional debt, working with multilateral development banks, and uh, think about how to manage their liabilities, basically their debt, in a way that is sustainable. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the dollar appreciation, the only good side in this current situation is that make exports uh, uh, cheaper. So there'll be an incentive for Pakistani exports outside. But but then, then we are going to open up, uh, I'm sorry, and the rest of the effect is not that great because if you have, again, that in dollars, it just becomes much more expensive. Here you touch, actually, if you begin going to this line of inquiry, we, we touch a much broader issue. That is, why is the region, the South Asia region, but Pakistan in particular, so inner looking? I mean, the country should be much more open to trade, but truly open. And, and for that, it needs to have, um, you know, processes and, uh, and uh, needs to have a... a um, a trade policy, let's call, that is really amenable for this integration with the rest of the world. Um, so it shouldn't have as much distortion. It shouldn't have uh, incentives for, say, import substitution necessarily. Actually, if anything, Pakistan needs to import more. So that helps costs, so help to reduce costs. And then you become more competitive for to export more. So there's a whole trade agenda for Pakistan that I think can be developed um, uh, more deeply. But that's a structural issue that you change slowly. Um, 
And uh, I think now is the time to do fiscal adjustment with targeting, uh, like you said before, targeting uh, expenditures and transfers to the parts of a population that really need them. And it's not the time to get more into that. If anything, you need to think about how to manage all your liabilities. Yeah, the import substitution thing is is an ongoing discussion there. And a, a lot of mainstream and the mainstream Pakistanis think that the economy is open to imports and to the rest of the world, where in reality, it's not a, every single indicator shows that Pakistan is a closed economy. And in fact, that's what benefits a very narrow segment of society exactly. to benefit from that. And the consumer loses out. And that's, that's again, um, something that needs a relook, but it has political costs and all sorts of other things that, you know, given the political instability there, make it that much more harder. Um, coming back to the initial point you made, right? Like in the US, economy is overheated. Um, Europe has a supply shock. And we saw throughout the pandemic for various reasons, and now with Russia and then the US economy overheating, commodity prices went through the roof. Everything from the Baltic dry index to um, coal and copper and oil and natural gas is through the roof. But now when we look at it, even used cars in America, right, went through this crazy, crazy spike because people had cash and they figured they could buy a used car. Um, and you weren't getting new ones because the chips weren't being produced in Malaysia and East Asia because of the pandemic. And now we're seeing them come back down. Do you think we're out of this higher inflation situation in the next few weeks or months or is this just uh, one of those things that we've seen a dip and countries like the US, as you said, will probably continue to raise rates as the markets are anticipating because they don't want to have a situation on their hand where they take it easy too early and then all of this comes roaring back and then we have a 70s-like situation. I think it's the latter. I think the Fed is not, the Fed is, I think rightly, by the way, quite hawkish now. They are not going to stop raising rates till they see some results. And again, the release today already points to some results. So you see some results. You see parts of the labor market kind of loosening some. You see the number of vacancies, job vacancies coming down. It's just it's still pretty, pretty tight. I think it's quite hard for the Fed because uh, the most the, the overall effect of a monetary policy tightening now happens in a period of uh, say four to six quarters. So they need to tighten and then have a forecast about what would be the effect uh, on the economy. And uh, because the inflation is so high now, at least for recent standards, um, the Fed's probably going to err on the side of being too tight than to be too loose now. So I think the tendency will be for the Fed to err on the side of basically causing a, a recession, even a, even if it's a small recession. I'm not saying it will happen necessarily. I'm just talking about risks here. I think the market is pricing a shallow recession in the US, um, which seems right. Um, it's very hard to do this kind of what people call soft landing because you know, what is soft landing, you know, really? I mean, it's like, I think if the Fed brings inflation back to around 2% by 2024 in a steady manner, and there is a, a shallow recession, it seems pretty soft to me, you know, since uh, it seems a, a victory. I don't know if what people mean soft landing is the Fed, the U.S. continues growing and inflation, and inflation comes down next year. That's just 
unrealistic. Um, so I, I think, yeah, we should, we are going to see probably a bit more tightening in the market, much more tightening in the Fed. The market already priced again. What's priced in the market is about five to five and a half percent interest rate, Fed funds rate by the first quarter of next year. So that's already in the system. So if the Fed delivers exactly that, there's no more tightening. Um, but it, is, it may be the case that the Fed ends up tightening more than that, the market pricing a bit more, close to 6%. But I mean, I'm not. I'm not in the business of doing these predictions. I'm not. I used to be a chief economist in a hedge fund a little while ago, but uh, but I'm not in that position anymore. I'm focused on development issues, so I'm not really following the ins and outs of uh, financial data. Uh, I follow to some extent, but not with the same. Um, that you're you're not telling a hedge fund to make certain trades based exactly. on what you see happening. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But I would say that. Yeah, again, knowing, and, and I worked for many years at the Federal Reserve in the research department there, knowing the Fed and all, I would say that they are probably going to be leaning toward uh, being hawkish. And I think that's the right policy. I think they're doing right. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think, again, as you said, we're beginning to see its impact, right? Even on the speculative assets like crypto, yeah. the bubbles popped, FTX just cast a couple of days, the drama over there is because money's expensive now and it's not easy to find a exactly. part of $8 billion anymore. Um, exactly. So so the issue is like, do, does the Fed need to do more than what's priced in? Maybe yes, maybe no. It's already all about, about five, five and a half in the market. So that may be enough. The Fed is going to be looking at inflation. And if if you continue, if you begin seeing more of what happened today, it's possible that they stop even just at five. But anyway, like you said, the risk is if you stop too early, then that gets entrenched inflation expectations, then it gets much harder to fight. So if anything, there is a bias toward tightening a bit more than its price right now. Yeah. Last question for you, and I'm mindful of time and would love, you mentioned Brazil, right? The Brazilian central bank saw this coming. Their analysis was sort of contrarian at that point in time and started raising yeah. rates. Capital inflows have been, um, et cetera. What other economies are there that you would say, you know what, they actually, especially on the emerging market side, saw what was coming and began to adopt macroprudential policies, either on the monetary side or on the fiscal side or a combination of both, that are like Brazil, that, you know, we're like, we see this coming, we're going to guard ourselves um, and do better. And the reason why I asked this question is that, you know, given majority of the audience here is Pakistani, I would love for the audience to take away other examples that they can Google on their own and research and say, you know what, there are policies a developing economy can adopt to both protect its poor people, protect some sort of growth happening, but also not fully expose itself to these exogenous shocks in a way that, you know, perhaps Pakistan has by running high fiscal deficits, a loose monetary policy in the wake of unprecedented shifts in the global financial system. Yeah, I would say that, I mean, I actually do not have as many examples like Brazil. What we, what we do see is all the currencies appreciated since January instead of depreciated. Then we have some countries like actually the Russian rubble appreciated significantly, but that's because they kept getting resources from oil sales and they cannot spend that, that dollar. So 
more dollars and vis-a-vis -vis rubble, so the rubble appreciates. So that's not a good example. Uh, we did see the Angolan currency appreciating significantly this year. Angola is a case that um, they actually did quite a bit of reforms and um, renegotiated some of their debt in the past. So now they're getting the benefits of, of, of that type of, uh, of uh, policy moves. So um, there was some appreciation of the Mexican currency as well. Um, I would say that there are not that many examples, actually, of countries that did what Brazil did. What they, what they are is examples of countries that have better um, monetary and macro policy frameworks, and they are playing catch up. In Latin America, you see several of those, for instance, uh, both Chile and Colombia were in tight spots because they were seen as behind the curve with on monetary policy, but they are, they are now, and there was some political issues as well. There was an election of a new president in Colombia, which there was some controversy there on what policies would be. And there was a discussion on the constitution, new constitution in Chile. So all that created also some noise. But what we see is the central banks now hiking quickly. And these are countries that have flexible exchange rates and they, and they have a decent, I would say, for emerging market standards, fiscal institutions. And I, I'm convinced that things are going to go okay for the countries. Um, so we have more examples of countries, again, that they are in, in, in a position of reacting now. Now, countries they did exactly right last year, not that many that come to mind. I think the countries they did best are the ones that concentrated the fiscal policy support during COVID on uh, transfers to the poor and Brazil did actually that, actually did quite well. Uh, macro managing Brazil was quite good, I think, the last two years. Um, also in fiscal policy in many ways, but Brazil has many issues. They are trend, lots of fiscal pressures, many problems, but in this short-term macro management, it did okay. And, um, and I think Mexico also had some transfer program that happened to be quite effective. Um, so now all these countries are in a position to begin loosening or tightening again fiscal policy as the economies are, are, are picking up. You see an employment rate declining significantly in Brazil, which is good. So it's a sign that even with the hiking rates, economic activity hasn't suffered as much. It will suffer because with these hikes that they did, it will have an effect. But so far, the effects seem to me, given the size of the hikes, relatively muted. Um, you have some other countries that are in a position uh, of strength to react to what's happening now. This tends to be countries that have good, again, policy frameworks. Uh, they tend to be inflation targeters. They tend to have flexible exchange rates. And, uh, and the rule, they tend to have independent fiscal councils. So then they can look at what's happening in the fiscal situation and independently pass their judgment. And then the government dialogue with them and society you know, kind of uses that as a guidepost for policies. So I think Pakistan should move in that direction. Yeah, I think the fiscal side is, is so important on the council or, or having an independent voice that can help have a dialogue with the government, right? Because the big issue in Pakistan, for example, has been 
that while the central bank over the last few years has gotten some independence, it's adopted a market-determined exchange rate. It's trying to target inflation through higher rates. But if the sovereign is not running a prudent fiscal framework, um, it's that much harder for a central bank to impose prudence on it by raising rates, right? At some point, fiscal policy has to be doing its share of the hard work in, in terms of you know pushing prudential policies. But if you're running 7 8 9% of GDP deficits, um, the central bank is going to find it very, very difficult to achieve its own goal all by itself, um, especially in a country like Pakistan, where monetary transmission mechanisms are not as strong, et cetera, et cetera. So I think at some point, and this is a conversation that totally is lacking in the Pakistani discourse is that at some point, the sovereign and the finance ministry has to be a bit more prudent and do its fair share, whether it is through progressive taxation or cutting deficits through expenditure cuts. But Marcelo, I know you have to leave. Um, so again, thank you so much for your time. This was wonderful uh, chatting with you about the outlook, about what's driving a lot of the decision making here in Washington and 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 the impact that's having on emerging markets. So would love to have you again for a longer discussion on some of these challenges as well and what needs to be done, but really appreciated your insights today. Thank you. Thanks so much. It has been a yeah. pleasure.